Joe McCulloch's written a few games in his time. Frostgrave, Stargrave, Oathmark, Rangers of Shadow Deep. He's got a new Napoleonic Gothic horror one on the way soon called Silver Bayonet. We're going to talk about all of these games with Joe himself on this episode of the podcast. And I kicked things off by asking him about the way things looked in the miniature wargame hobby market when Frostgrave was released back in 2015. Was the landscape pretty similar as it is today in 2021? Or are there some drastic distinctions? I think Games Workshop looked really different. So 2015 was the year they, they killed the old world and um, kind of <laughs> sent shockwaves through through fantasy gaming. And, and that <laughs> probably actually proved really helpful because I think a lot of people were like really disgusted and, and just ready to, to find something else. And, um, and and there it was, you know, just by, by virtue of luck. Um, but I do think also... Right, right around that time, maybe a little before, but you started to see a really noticeable increase in the quality of smaller games. So, mm-hmm. people, people like Osprey got into publishing, or you had new companies springing up like like Warlord or something that that um, you know, actual companies as started to publish these games that that in the decade before probably would have been self-published. And um, so bringing that resource, you know, of artwork of just printing quality um, to it. So I think, whereas 10 years ago, if you wanted a really kind of nice looking book, you only had a couple of choices, you know, you had games workshop and maybe a few others, but now you've got a lot of choice between books that, that look you know, generally all of, of really quite professional quality. And um, so really kind of, it's made it a much broader playing field because um, whereas before a lot of those games, A, would have been hard to attain, um, but also may have been like kind of poo-pooed by some people because of the the less than professional look of them. I, I grew up with Games Workshop in the, the 90s, in the sort of early to mid 90s. And um you know, to to me, a game, a miniatures game, it was the rules, it was the miniatures, it was the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I have heard from sort of people older than I am about the old Hammer era where <laughs> there was a kind of different ethos of like the, the, the bring what you have and the use what you have. Yeah. And when I got back into the hobby a couple of years ago, the, the miniature agnostic um, concept was, was very new to me and I was very surprised and delighted about it. Right. Um, do you think that? Do you think there's a nod to that older era with with the miniature agnostic systems? Because we do see a lot of them now. Yeah, I mean, th- there's two things going on. One, obviously, if you're just writing a game as an individual, you you don't have miniatures, so <laughs> you know it has to be kind of miniatures agnostic by default. Um, and you know there is an element of that to Frostgrave, even though it does have have miniatures. It was written thinking there wouldn't be, but um. But also, I just, for me, miniatures games have always been agnostic. Um, You know, I've just, I've never really worried about these are the miniatures that that go with this game. Um, I guess that just kind of goes back to to my childhood and and A, starting with Dungeons & Dragons, where it was kind of like, oh, here's a miniature I can use for it. But also just those early days of wargaming when even, even the companies like Games Workshop that had miniatures often didn't have miniatures to represent all of the stuff in the game 
or yeah, they, there is more of an open idea of like create your own monsters or whatever. So that if you found a cool miniature, you could just plop it in there. And, um, and yeah, that's just something that's never left me. And, and when I came to, in fact, it's, it's, I was kind of the other way in that I never fully realized how much of the industry thought differently to me, how much most people came into the hobby through one specific game, generally games workshop, but not necessarily. And thus saw the hobby just through that one game. Here's the game. Here's the miniatures. And thus always thought if I go to another game, there'll there'll be miniatures for it. And so it really wasn't until Frostgrave came out and a lot of people started saying, wow, this is amazing. I've never even kind of thought of playing games this way. (laughs) It occurred to me. It's like, wow, there's a lot of people playing games a different way. Um, So quite interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny that it's funny because I, I almost had the same attitude myself. And I, you were talking about when they blew the old world up. So I was unaware of that. And I think it was maybe like late 2018 and it was um, going into the winter. And I just had this itch and I was reading some of the old Black Library books. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to have a bit of a Google, see how Warhammer's doing these days. And then a couple <laughs> of like the top uh, blog posts, it was like old world blown up. And I was like, oh no. Um, <laughs> it's not. That's I always okay. liked to thought, like for, for all those years I was out of the hobby, I always liked to thought that I could just, you know, when you've seen a games yeah, workshop. I can in get back center, in I want. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the ex-heroin addict, he knows that his dealer's there. Yeah. Um, should he want to get back into it? So it was it was very, um, I wouldn't say traumatic. That's that's quite dramatic. But then I, it led me to finding stuff like Kings of War, which seemed mm-hmm. a natural replacement. Um, and they, they kind of came to the table with a bit of a miniatures agnostic approach at the time because they obviously yeah. just wanted people to, like, come in with their old Warhammer armies. But, um, yeah, it wasn't long before I discovered Frostgrave as well. So, um do you think that, like, do you think it was a perfect, I mean, I, I'm not taking anything away from the, the great game that yeah, you created, yeah. but do you think there was a perfect set of conditions when you created Frostgrave, when you released it the, the, in its first edition that's led to it being just such a, a popular and cult game? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes right down to it, any kind of publishing, any kind of creative endeavor, you know, so much of its success is going to be based on on luck. Um you know, that's not to say my game is good or bad or any individual game is good or bad, but even if a game is really good, if it's going to kind of become popular, it's got to have a huge amount of luck. And, and yeah, I think Frostgrave did, did benefit from that. I mean, like I said, it it came right at that old world blowing up time. It came at a time when in, in many ways, despite blowing up the world, old world games workshop seemed really set in its ways and, had kind of abandoned a lot of the games that people love, you know, most notably in this conversation, Mordheim, you know, a lot of people wanted that were looking for that small skirmish fantasy game. And it just, it wasn't really out there. Um, so I got lucky that I, I came at a time when, you know, there, there wasn't kind of a, a competitor for it immediately available. Um, and in fact, at that time, Games Workshop wasn't really supporting any, kind of the smaller games that I think and I think they they just hadn't realized that gaming society had moved on a bit and um, as a lot of us have gotten older um, we're looking for shorter play games and games that had less painting commitment you know games that just didn't dominate your life quite so much because 
you know, you're older and you've got kids and you've got a job and you just don't have the time to, to put into it anymore. So I got really lucky in that sense. I also got really lucky in a couple of other ways. Um, so Osprey was just kind of really becoming something in, in the gaming field. In fact, like, so up to that point, Osprey had published a, a war game series and Frostgrave became the first book they did to have the Osprey Games logo. So it became its own separate entity. So I think it got some, some good press through that. Um, you know, they Osprey hired an incredible artist for it. Um, a guy, Dmitry Bermak, a, a Russian artist who's now done all kinds of things. He's doing magic cards and, and, and work for Pathfinder, I believe and stuff. And just, I think brought a really different look to, to fantasy gaming again, whereas a lot of people had been seeing either, either the grim dark kind of fantasy, or they'd been seeing the very kind of Tolkien-esque fantasy. Suddenly in war gaming, there was this much more kind of Dungeons and Dragons, pulpy fun kind of fantasy. You know, it's like these colorful wizards and um, you know, there's there's nothing necessarily dark or moody about it. It can be if you want it to be, but it can also just kind of be fun and adventurous. And um, so I think that was big. And then then North Star got involved and, and you know started to make figures for it, which is just you know as as much as I love miniature as agnostic. There's nothing like miniatures to advertise <laughs> your game because mm. it's just always hey look at these new miniatures in, in it you know and that's probably why most of us are in this hobby is because we love little miniatures and we love looking at miniatures. Every time we see a new miniature and you know, it's for Frostgrave, then, then you're going to hear that name Frostgrave and you can hopefully be intrigued. Um, and also you how, go ahead. No, I was just going to say how, how much um, say did you have over the aesthetic of the miniatures? Um, but don't let me throw you off your train. Okay. Of thought well, here, I mean, one thing, the last point I was going to add was, um, some of the early miniatures were sculpted by uh, Mark Copplestone, who's kind of an old school, big name in, in miniature sculpting. And, and he hadn't done any fantasy figures for years. Um, and, and why, to be honest, he, he did some Frostgrave ones, I don't know. But but I think just like having that name attached to it, too, people are like, oh, Copplestone's back. He's doing some fantasy figures, you know, and that just <laughs> has people sit up and take notice. Um Sorry, what what was your question? <laughs> yeah, the, um, how much say did you have over yeah. the aesthetic of the miniatures? Um, as much as I wanted, I guess would be the kind of truth. But the the truth is, so I think very much in words, um, and I find other artistic outlets very difficult to think about and imagine. And I know that's weird because like, you know, people think, well, you're, you're creating fantasy worlds and I am. So I do have occasional snapshots, but really I'm, I'm thinking in concepts and words. And so when it comes to doing things like the artwork, so I brief the artwork, but my, my artwork briefs are pretty brief. Um, <laughs> and, and I rely a lot on, on the artist to, to bring to life kind of what I'm trying to say. And, and that's true, whether that's, um, you know, painting, or whether that's sculpting. And um, so in general, I, I kind of let other people 
drive the look of the figures for for any of the games really mm. i mean a lot of it a lot of it will be taken directly from that artwork so obviously it kind of comes from my brief goes to the artist and, and then goes to a sculptor but but you know <laughs> very often you could look at my brief and not be able to connect it to the figure that that eventually comes out so so I'm, yeah again really lucky that a lot of talented people are you know supporting me by using their ability to, to bring something to the game that I could never do. Yeah, I suppose in any creative project, there's a lot to be said by just finding the right group of people that you trust and just letting them do their job, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, because Frostgrave is so um, popular and, and influential, you're bound to come across in your time a couple of um, other games which are a bit cheeky. Have you ever came across like a snow snow crypt or something? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I... For the most part, I don't worry about it, or I try not to worry about it at any rate. Um, you know, there's so many games out there, and there's so many ideas, and and really, we're all we're all building on what has gone before. You know, like Frostgrave doesn't exist probably if if Dungeons and Dragons doesn't exist, if Games Workshop doesn't exist. You know, while I'm not trying, obviously, to, to steal anything from them their influence in in my gaming and just in my thought process is huge and and i know that's going to be true for people going forward you know they're going to see the lessons from frostgrave and and draw their own kind of conclusions from that and um and some of that's going to filter into their own game design um and that's you know as long as you're not flat out you know purposely trying to just redo what I already did um, and, and pass it off as your own. It, it's quite an honor to think that people might be, be influenced by what I've done and, and try to bring some of that to their, their game design. Um, but beyond that, I mean, like, you know, I, I own the trademark for Frostgrave, but you know, the last thing I want to do obviously is get into a legal fight with anybody over anything. So that's, that's not fun. And um, we'll, we'll cut to an ad now for my new game, uh, Snow Crypt, coming uh, winter <laughs> 2021. Um, get your pre-orders in for Exactly. You know, a lot, uh, of, a lot of people actually did write me when um, Frosthaven was announced. So the, the new kind of game from Gloomhaven. And, um, Is that a thing? I didn't know that. Frostgrave. Yeah, it, it, it kick-started last year, I guess. So I don't know whether it's actually out yet or not. And, you know... Obviously, the the word Frosthaven is pretty close to the word Frostgrave, but, you know, they're different things. And to be honest, they probably weren't even aware of Frostgrave, or if they were, they didn't think about it as they were doing that. But but at the same time, you know, it's a different type of game, and, and there's there's plenty of room for both in the market. So I decided, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um well, the imitation is the the highest form of flattery. As exactly. It exactly. Um, so, fro- frost, grave, snow, frost, cold. Uh, why the setting that you chose? I know I've listened to a lot of different interviews with yeah. you, and I know that you, I know that you uh, talk about how you're not enforcing that setting on people. You know that yeah. they could play on a tropical island if they want. But um, why the why the frozen city? Why why choose that aesthetic? Yeah. So originally, when I started working on the game. And I'd forgotten this, but I found some old notes not too long ago. And, and 
I found like my original blurb for the game and it was actually set in a desert. Um, it was actually set in a, you know, a desert sit, ruined city. Um, Sandgrave. Yeah, it was, it was essentially Sandgrave. And, um, and I think um, as I was working on it, a, a couple of things happened. I wanted, I wanted the city to seem very dead. <laughs> and, and um, the more I thought about it, I was like, but, you know, dead and dry has been done a lot. Um, why, don't, why don't I try something a little different and make it dead and frozen? Because, you know, what's more than dead is dead and frozen. You know? <laughs> like, so I don't know. And, and then once I kind of got that little idea in my head, it was just like, you know what? That's just not that's just not been done very much. Um you know, but but it also gives you this idea that, like, not only is this kind of the other players are against you and and any kind of traps and stuff in the city are against you, but even the weather is against you. You know, it's just it's just a really miserable place to be. Sounds like Scotland. <laughs> Scotland grave. Make that next exactly. year. I'll play that. Yeah. I'll play that every day when I leave my house. And also, and you know. This is one of those things that I don't know how much influence it had, but kind of retrospectively, I think quite a bit. It, a year or two before I wrote Frostgrave, I um, surprised my wife with a romantic getaway to to Tallinn, the, the capital of Estonia, and because mm. um, literally I'd seen a picture of it on a on a website somewhere, and it was like cool old medieval city. I'm like, that looks great. We're going. So I booked <laughs> tickets for the middle of February. And um, not realizing just how far north Estonia is. And um, it was only like after I'd booked the tickets and, and given them to her that I realized that the, the average temperature was going to be minus, minus 13 Celsius <laughs> when we were there. <laughs> and, and we got there, the first day we got there, it just dumped snow over everything. And, um, and it turned out to be an amazing trip because like, it is a, a beautiful city and, and even more beautiful in the snow. You know, it is this medieval city and, and the snow makes it all kind of glow and beautiful and covers up, you know, <laughs> any problems. But, um, and, but it, it also meant that like we'd, we'd go somewhere and you could only spend about 20 minutes outside before you had to dive into a cafe. But I think, um, but that just kind of really stuck in my brain, this idea of this medieval city, covered in snow you know because there's just it meant that getting anywhere was hard and it also meant that like you never quite knew exactly what you were looking at or what could be around the corner because everything was a little more obscured so mm. i think that that played a huge role in kind of pushing my brain in that direction yeah when you when you see a photo online of frostgrave being played and it's um you know it's it's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The format was maybe originally intended with that setting. It's it's striking that straight away that is Frostgrave. Um, it's not 40k, it's not yeah. Warhammer. You know, you see the snow on the buildings, the ice, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it actually, yeah, that's one thing that's, you know, again, kind of a stroke of luck. I, I stumbled into a game where it was immediately obvious to everybody walking by the table what was being played. and um, Which is funny because I think when I wrote it, part of me was like, nobody's going to like cover their terrain in snow. You know, nobody's going to put snow on the bases of their figures. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that brings me on interestingly to, to what I wanted to ask you next. So uh, take me, for example, I've got a bunch of like miniatures in a cabinet here. Um, they're all goblin green bases and stuff like that. Yeah. And I've got all sorts of terrain. There's no snow on them. So what I could do, you know, with Frostgrave, I could start to get miniatures and base them white and put some snow on buildings and stuff. But then that that kind of limits those uh, yeah. miniatures and buildings to that particular uh, way that I would play Frostgrave. Yeah. Um, in your experience in the community, are is it pretty much 50-50? You know, are there people who really go down the, the frosty aesthetic and are, are there just people who prefer to play in warmer climates? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's, I think it really comes down to like how much of the hobbying aspect you like in your hobby, you know? So people who really like making terrain and really like painting figures tend to go for the snowy things because they just love making stuff. So <laughs> they've already got all the temperate stuff they need anyway. So now it's like, Hey, new challenge. Um, but like, even, you know, I didn't have, so for years I played it with just kind of regular miniatures and, and regular terrain. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I said, you know what, I'm going to actually paint up my Frostgrave warband and I'm actually going to put snow on the bases and stuff. So, you know, because I'm, I'm quite a slow painter. So, it is it is a big commitment even to do 10 miniatures and you know limit them to kind of this setting but mm-hmm. but it was also a really fun fun project you know i wouldn't want to do an entire army that way but but with 10 figures i thought yeah i can do this and and that's okay like especially me i know i'm going to play enough frostgrave that the investment's going to be worth it but you know if you're a very casual kind of player you're mm-hmm. going to want those figures to be usable for for different settings that's fine I want to ask you about your other games in a sec, but one last thing on Frostgrave is um, the, the second, was it the second edition that was released last year? Second yeah. edition? Second edition. Um, so how how terrified were you prior to that coming out? And uh, <laughs> how, how did things look once the dust settled? Were you quite content with it all? I was pretty stressed. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I knew, like, I'm not making any massive changes in terms of the game you know i'm not changing any of the systems that that i know people like so the only thing i was really worried about was changing or replacing some of the spells because i just like i knew that there's going to be some people out there where i've just gotten rid of their favorite spell uh even though you know the spells i got rid of either were because almost nobody used them or they weren't powerful enough or whatever but you know, there <laughs> was sure to be somebody. But, and also just like anytime you release a rule book, you live in abject terror of someone going on page 47, it says this. And you know, <laughs> that's completely at odds. Page 48. Yeah. It's like, oh, no. But um, luckily, we're, we're now a year and a half removed and no, no one said that to me. So, yeah, I'm yeah, feeling waking up in a cold it. sweat at night. Yeah. And, you know, like, in some ways I didn't stress as much about that one as, as say a completely new game because, you know, I didn't know that these systems work, you know, and there's mm. no major problem. And I knew that, you know, the reason I was doing it was to, to clean up minor problems. So, you know, hopefully it'll be a better book. And, and I think it is, um, there is one, you know, there's a magic item that got left out, so you can roll it on the table, and there's just no description of it in there, <laughs> which you can find in the errata. But, but I, luckily, I think that's the biggest, the biggest mistake in the book. You know, everything uh, other than that, there really isn't much. 
and it's all kind of just a few clarifications here and there. So it's, it's gone down really well. And I'm, I'm really pleased in that. I think it is basically the same game that, that everybody knew and loved. It's just slightly better. It's just slightly more polished and, you know, better written and, and clearer. So. Yeah, I mean, nobody could have accused you of doing a second edition for cynical reasons. You're not, <laughs> you're not sitting on, but you know, sh- shipping boxes of miniatures and stuff. Um, exactly. If anything, that would have been easier for you just to leave it alone, wouldn't it? So, yeah, um, not put yourself through all that. But uh, yeah, um, like I said, I did some pseudo research prior to having right. a chat. So I was seeing a uh, Rangers the Shadow Deep, a sort of so- solo co-op game if i'm correct yeah. came out march uh, 2020 which i thought that was perfect timing then i saw oathmark um mass <laughs> fantasy battle game came out april 2020 i thought that couldn't have chose a worse time <laughs> for that so uh um is that something that um you you, you noticed at the time and uh, yeah. you know you lucked out on one end and 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 had no luck on the other side yeah just i guess so so rangers of shadow deep actually came out uh, a year and a half before that but it was ah, right. it was self-published so uh-huh. it, it was only kind of available as a PDF or, or as print on demand through, through drive through RPG and, and it had built up a pretty good following, but then, yeah, then, then I, Modifius talked me into letting them, them republish the, the book in a really nice edition. And, um, and yeah, it actually, I think did benefit from, from lockdown. You know, I think all of a sudden everybody was looking for things that they could do. <laughs> in their house by themselves. And yeah, so I became one of the few people who like economically it might've worked out. Okay. But, um, but yeah, on the flip side, Oathmark got absolutely crushed by it. Um, it was supposed to have a, a huge launch at salute. And, you know, I was going to travel to a couple of places to do promotions for it. And, um, and of course none of that happened. And, And more importantly, like it's a game that, you absolutely have to play with another person and no one could for, for months on end. <laughs> and when, you know, you've been in the industry for a while, you realize that like that first six months for any game is, is probably the most important it'll ever have. Cause um, mm. kind of basically if it doesn't reach some sort of kind of critical mass in that time, then it'll just kind of fade away. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I was I was going to ask that, like, if and I mean, it was circumstances outside of your control, but you know, the launch goes so badly because of the worldwide situation. C- can you can you come back from it and and rescue? I'm not saying the game's dead by any yeah, means, yeah. <laughs> but um, how do you how do you get it back to the forefront of folks' minds? Well, I mean, luckily there there were a couple of expansions for it in the pipeline already, and so those have come out kind of regularly afterwards and kept 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 it at the forefront of people's minds and and again like because it does have a range of miniatures with it there's there's often new miniatures coming out so again you get those kind of advertising hits um every time that happens um beyond that i don't know i mean you know oathmark's doing fine it's it's bumping along but um but you know and you can never say what what would have been. Maybe maybe it's at the level it would have been anyway. You know, maybe that's just mm-hmm. the natural level for that game. But there's part of me that says, man, it could have been so much bigger if if things had gone gone better. Um, yeah, 
not not saying this will happen anytime soon, but was it in the works before the old world Warhammer the old world was announced? Um, which we might see in the next what fifteen years yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was. So I'd been working on it for almost two years before it came out, or I started working on it about two years before it came out. So I, don't, <laughs> I have no idea what when that puts it. So twenty seventeen, I guess. I started working on it. Um, so yeah, it's a, a long time, really. Uh, you know, because it it was a much longer development process than any of my other games, really. And um, and then you add in all the production as well, and yeah, <laughs> it takes a long time to to put a game out. So, what uh, what game has taken you out your comfort zone the most when you've been creating it? That one. Both Mark. I am, I'm not by nature a big battles gamer. Um, And that's not because I don't like it. It's, it goes back to my painting and and being a slow painter and thus never being able to actually finish an army (laughs) and thus rarely playing those games unless I'm using someone else's miniatures. Um, But, you know, I love the, I just love the look of a big fantasy army. There's, there's nothing to kind of compare that to in, in, in fantasy miniatures. It's just a beautiful thing to see somebody's units all arrayed and, you know, all put together for that photo shoot. So, you know, it's still something I really love, but, but like having written Frostgrave and and a couple other things before that, there's, there's a couple of, issues with with a mass battle game that are just completely different and and they seem innocuous at first but things like line of sight and maneuvers and you know and and charges whereas from one figure to one figure it's all it's generally pretty easy when you're mm-hmm. dealing with units of figures you start having to think well wait a minute like how many of the figures in the unit have to be able to see or have to be able to charge into, or so you start to have to deal with, with angles and, and that can get yeah, two, really two, tricky. Two huge units and they're touching corners, but they're fighting. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. And, and you just, not. and you start to get into these issues. If you realize like, man, this is so hard to put into words, like on paper, if, if I was just standing next to somebody, this would be really easy to explain. You know, because mm-hmm. I'd be able to go like this, like this, like this. But like on paper is really tough. And um, so I had to like continuously rewrite some of these rules that, you know, I thought these are simple things. And then during playtesting, you realize these are not simple things because <laughs> if you follow the rules as written, this happens. And it's like, oh, that's not what I want. So, and also it was the first time I had to deal with point values. Um, you know, I, I've done that. I do that, I guess, a little bit in something like Frostgrave where you have a, a cost to the figures, but frankly, it's not hugely relevant. Whereas in a, in a game like this, where you're purchasing all your units, um, where I guess the, the abilities of each unit are really important, then, um, you know, you got to use these point values and, and, you know, a lot has been written about point values over the years and it's all true about how you know everything 
is just a guess. You know, when I did Oathmark, I started with a formula. This is the formula for how I take a figure stats and convert it into a point value. And it worked well enough as long as I didn't dwell on it too much. Because, <laughs> you know, so many things are circumstantial or, you know, well, so many things are circumstantial. They're only useful in, in given situations. And how do you assign a cost to something? How do you assign a cost to the ability to walk on water when you have no idea if there's going to be water on the table? Um, so that well, was... Hey. What's the rec- what's the recommended size of table for Oathmark? Is it six four? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, for the reason that because every other game is um more than anything else. But do you think that's just quite a natural size of table for twenty eight millimeter scale? Um I think it's natural because it's the size of two <laughs> two folding tables put together more than mm. anything else. But um but yeah, I mean, I think it is, I think it does work out in that for armies of a specific size, which is the size you're usually going to want to play with, it gives you a good evening's worth of gaming. Um, with Oathmark, you might even get two in because it, it tends to play very fast, but but there's plenty of maneuver room on that for most armies. So, you know, four by four is a little bit constrained on the, the flanks, which, you know, flanks play such a big big part i mean in truth you probably don't actually need the four the six is probably more important than the four you could probably do six by three and you're just because even even in the oath mark rules there's a, a rule about on the first turn you can just kind of march towards the enemy and you don't have to do any of the special rolling or anything because mm. frankly that first turn's generally kind of dull <laughs> yeah because yeah. you yeah, don't do need the- four feet so Did you know that, just like every other podcast out there, this show has its very own Patreon? But this is no ordinary Patreon. It's actually the worst Patreon ever. That's right, there's no rewards, no extras, no bonus content, no early access, no shout-outs and no thank yous. I'll just take the money and quietly get on with making the show. Not that there's any money to take because hardly anyone's pledging to the thing. Like I say, it's the worst Patreon ever. Find it at bedroombattlefields.com slash worst Patreon ever. That's all one word, worst Patreon ever. Now, back to the show. Do, do the long, narrow table. It's, it could be like a gully or a mountain pass or something. Um, exactly. Big, long stretch of carpet for them to march down. <laughs> the only people who want the four-foot table are the elves. It's like, eh, we need more shooting time. <laughs> Make them walk. So. I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before with the, the, the big ranking flank uh, mass fantasy battle games and the issue of the table and the layout and stuff because I've always felt that the battle ends up concentrated. So I, I like to just have this big bit of space in the middle, almost like a prearranged like football park sitting there for them right. to meet and fight. And the terrain's all round about them, almost decorative. Right. And you look at a game like Frostgrave or, or games like Necromunda, where it's very, you know, the, the terrain is um, you're climbing, you're, you're finding cover and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it seems a completely different world, the, the terrain <laughs> on the, these mass games. Is that is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people didn't understand when Frostgrave came out is I said, you know, it's got to be a crowded table. And like my, what I was envisioning for a crowded table is so far removed from what most people play with. It took people a while to figure out what that is. So now, now there's like, you go on the, the Facebook group or whatever, and people be like, here's my table. And everybody's like, 
put more stuff on it. You know, <laughs> otherwise you're just gonna get fireballed to death. You know, for me the perfect frost grave table is you take a a box full of blocks and you just upend it on the table. You know, <laughs> and like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's the table. So, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, nobody yeah. could complain about strategic placing of uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, so without yeah, got, Oakmark, I, yeah, I mean obviously you're not gonna have anywhere near that level of terrain um that said i like you know terrain makes tables look cool and, and makes them fun to play on well it makes them fun to to be standing next to um now oathmark tends to allow for a lot more movement and maneuver than a lot of rank and flank games or uh, units tend to be a bit more nimble um so terrain isn't quite as hugely limiting as it is in, in some rank and flank games. And thus you can, you can have a bit more of it on the table without thinking this is going to just grind the, the game to a halt. Um, you know, that said, you're not going to want to overload it. You are going to want plenty of rooms for, for units to, to clash and maneuver, but, but because that's what the game's about and that's, you know, not what skirmish games are about. So you got to fit the table to suit the game. I know we kind of moved on from Frostgrave, but yeah. we're going to talk about Stargrave as well. And I'm just curious because I'm sure it was an interview with yourself that had talked about the wooden blocks, um, almost like well, kids, kids blocks. I got a yeah. set myself and um, just <laughs> painted them up grey. And yeah, um, what, what are some of the most uh, innovative, if I could say the word, and yeah. uh, low cost um, terrain features you've seen people in the community making for either of those games? Um, I mean, that's the big one. Yeah. Take a box, take a box of blocks and just spray paint it gray. And like, you've just got every frost grave table you'll ever need. Um, but, but also like, I love, I love the people that take the, the packing material, like the, you know, the cardboard that's form fitted to, to hold your new computer or whatever. And, um, mm. so you turn it upside down and it's got all kinds of the cool lumps and gullies and, you know, again, spray that sucker gray and, you've just got a whole block, you know, of, of the city or, or something. And, you know, and you don't, I think people get caught up on this idea of like, Oh, I got it. It's got to look like ruins. And, and the truth is it really doesn't. Cause once you start playing, like your brain just takes over and your imagination takes over and, and, and that gray spray, spray painted block or box will become the mausoleum or you know whatever it's like it's why virtual reality i think has never quite caught on as way in the way people thought it would because actually it turns out just a video game's good enough because the human brain is good at kind of filling in the cracks and um mm-hmm. you know puttying over all the all the problems or you know in the case of a video game blocking out anything that isn't the screen so that you're fully immersed without mm. having to literally be fully immersed and i think the same is true of a war game once you're playing it and especially a, a skirmish one where you're like you know like frostgrave you're you're into the story of your wizard you know that's where you're starting that's where your brain's starting from you know he is climbing over ruins whatever those ruins actually are on the table and and that's when you know you're you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, the imagination's a powerful thing, and it, like you say, it will fill in the blanks. You know, if if things don't look entirely realistic, and let's face it, a table of miniatures doesn't look like a real setting. Like <laughs> exactly. there's a lot. You know, people are walking about on stands and stuff. You you've got a your your yeah. brain just casts that aside and gets on with the story, doesn't it? So exactly. I mean, like even when you you play, 
Because like you're doing mass battle and you put a building on it and you realize this building is either the smallest house that's ever been constructed or it's this <laughs> massive, you know, palace, you know, the scale doesn't yeah. really make sense, but you don't care. So. And like, here, here is my town and it's got three houses. Exactly. Like, that's, that's like just a rich guy. Exactly. So. In, in the same way that, you know, your unit has 20 figures in it, which is, you know, this is... This doesn't even qualify as a skirmish in real warfare, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. That's you. That's representative. That's a fight outside a chap shop. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, mentioned that a couple of times now. Stargrave, when Stargrave uh, was first sort of touted, um, and everyone saying it's 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 Frostgrave in space. How how true or untrue was that statement? Um, you know, like I don't know. <laughs> it depends on that's kind of like an eye of the beholder thing uh, it, mm. it annoyed me when some people said oh it's just a reskin because yeah to me a reskin is literally just changing terminology so that your crossbow becomes a, a rifle you know mm-hmm. and that it absolutely isn't um you know i spent a lot of work <laughs> a lot of time working on it and and thinking about how you know, what, what rules I needed to change or get rid of or add to, to bring the flavor of space to, to what was a familiar core system, you know? Yeah. It uses the same combat system. It uses the same activation system, but so do lots of games, you know, sort of that, that change, that change setting, but, but there's also a lot of rules that are different. And, um, is it Frostgrave in space? Yes. In in that, if you like the core mechanics of Frostgrave, you're going to find a lot of those familiar mechanics in Stargrave. But I wanted to make sure that playing the games felt different. And, you know, Frostgrave is a game where everybody generally has guns, and thus the tactics of what you do are very different, and some of the rules... I've added are in there because of those tactics and to reflect those tactics and to make some of them possible and make other things impossible. And, um, so, you know, if you, <laughs> I think if you didn't like Frostgrave, you're probably not going to like Star Stargrave. And if you did like it, you probably will like it, but hopefully you'll find them different experiences. And, um, you know, and I've seen a couple of people say like, I love Frostgrave, but I don't like Stargrave. Um, because of x y and z and while i never like to hear anyone say you know i don't like your game (laughs) in some ways it's good to hear it because it shows these these really are different games you know if you can Mm -hmm. like one and dislike the other there's enough difference between them so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah true um spring 20 spring 2021 i think that came out so um we were um, in a more optimistic period then than yeah. probably when, when Oathmark came out, uh, and obviously the the buy-in in terms of getting you know your models to a location to play somebody else, it's, it was going to be a lot easier too. So were you a lot less affected by the pandemic when when Stargate um, came out? Uh, you know, actually, I was probably more more edgy about it because you know when Oathmark came out, one like it hadn't happened yet. Um, we didn't know what pandemic meant and and there was literally nothing I could do about it anyway. It just happened. Mm. Um, whereas in the road leading up to Stargrave, so most of Stargrave was kind of developed 
during the pandemic and with no clear idea of what the world would look like when it actually came out. And then that's why, well, not why, but it's one of the reasons I wrote um, Dead or Alive, which is the, the kind of free supplement for Stargrave that basically allows you to play it solo, or at least it allows you to to run a solo campaign based on bounty hunting. Um, mm. And so I wanted to, I just did, I didn't want to get into an Oathmark situation where my game came out and no one could play it. Um, Cause you know, if, if nothing else, that's just a shame. And um, as it turned out, it, it didn't really matter because at least in Britain and, and I think most of the world by that point, people were out of lockdown. Um, but I think it also proves that just there is now more than ever before an appetite for, for solo wargaming and, um, and having do that. You like, do you like writing solo or co-op systems? Do you enjoy that? I do and I don't. <laughs> I do in that it, in some ways it, it takes me back to my youth more because that's how I did most of my gaming as a child um, because I didn't have anyone to, to game with or I didn't have enough people to game with. So I did a lot of solo gaming. So in some ways it's a, it takes me back. And in some ways it's a more, I find it a more pure form of gaming in that the rules truly only matter as much as you want them to, because you're not beholden to anybody else. And thus, if you want to house rule something, you just do it literally while you're playing the game and you don't have to worry about how that affects anybody else. Um, And that's Mm. a huge amount of freedom comes from that. That said, it's a lot, harder to write solo scenarios than it is competitive ones. Um, You know, in competitive ones, you essentially just have to balance a scenario in the sense that both players have an equal chance of being affected by the special rules of the scenario. Whereas in solo gaming, you're having to think about the balance of how hard are all the traps, monsters, terrain features, you know, versus what the party is going, what the players, figures are going to be able to accomplish. And not only is it a question of like, how, what's the chance of the player winning? It's figuring out what is, what is the right chance for the player to win? By which I mean, if I'm creating a solo scenario, do I want the player to have about a 50-50 chance of winning? Do I want them to have a 75% chance of winning, a 25% chance? You know, because in some ways that really comes down to the player. Some players like it harder. Some people don't want it so hard. And um, so it's difficult to kind of balance that. And you have to think about that every time. And if a scenario is part of a campaign, how hard is each scenario in that campaign? Um, And also when you're writing that scenario, there's just a lot more to write because you have to explain everything that the, the enemy is going to do. And the scenario, the scenario is the enemy in that case. So like the scenario has to do more things. It has to have more moving parts than, than a competitive one does to to make it interesting because you don't have the interest of another player you're competing against. So the scenario needs to be more intricate to to provide that that interest. So, mm-hmm. so it's just a solo scenario. There's a lot more design and construction to it, um, but that's that can be really fun. Um, 
it can also be a headache and difficult. <laughs> uh, tell me a wee bit about Silver Bayonet then. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> Silver Bayonet is is as close as I'll ever come to writing a historical war game. <laughs> Probably. Um, it um, It's basically take the Sharps series on TV and you get to play Sharp and his few chosen men uh, either, well, against another little group of Sharp and his men, but there's also werewolves running around. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's Napoleonic Gothic horror. And um, so the idea is that each player has this kind of handpicked unit of Napoleonic soldiers. So you pick, you pick a nation and then you got a big list of, of kind of soldiers you can draw from. So like the British can have a red coat, they can have a rifleman, they can have sailors, they can have officers, they can have artillerists and, you know, some more esoteric stuff. And uh, you, you round up your little party of like eight guys um, and you've got your officer who's more of a character and he's got some special abilities you get to choose. And, um, and the other player does the same. But instead of kind of fighting because you're British and he's French, uh, you're fighting because uh, you're both wanting to get this occult tome or, you know, there is a troll who has probably accumulated some interesting artifacts in this place or you're looking for, um, yeah, some some mystical artifact from something, but it's in this old haunted castle. So you are going to shoot at those French because they're trying to take the same thing you want, but actually in some ways you're more worried about this ghost that's floating around and um, potentially just going to hurt you real bad. And, um, and it's, it's very much about, you can kind of choose some special equipment for all your guys and each of the kind of monsters you might encounter ghosts or vampires or werewolves have specific weaknesses. So obviously the silver bayonet is a reference to, to having a weapon to fight a werewolf. Um, so like, but not all your guys are going to have a silver bayonet because some of them might be carrying, you know, garlic or salt or, <laughs> you know, fire to fight other things. And um, so when you encounter that werewolf, you have to make sure you can maneuver the guys that have the things that can fight the werewolf into the right place. But of course, you know, the French are over there sniping at you, kind of hoping that werewolf mauls you. And, uh, <laughs> So yeah. if, if a wee if a wee holiday at Tallinn helped to inspire the idea behind Frostgrave, what were you yeah. up to um, when you when you came up with this idea? I think doing a lot of drugs. <laughs> I think um, I think what it is is so I worked at at Osprey for uh, I don't know fourteen years, um, and and most of that time, you know, the main thrust of Osprey and the main thrust of my job was military history. You know, publishing these books of they really were for for war gamers to to know how to paint their miniatures um you know they were uniform guides and so you just i just saw all these beautiful illustrated books of military uniforms and the best ones were napoleonic like it is hmm. without a doubt the most colorful beautiful interesting era of military uniforms it's like they want they wanted shot back then. Exactly. Please shoot me. Uh, and like I've always wanted to to paint some of those minis, but I've never 
wanted to paint an army and mm. and I've never really wanted to be completely beholden to accuracy um so as much as I loved looking through those books I just saw them as like these are cool options you know mm-hmm. and so I wanted a game where I could I could paint up a handful of napoleonics and a they wouldn't have to be a unit in the sense of they're all British line. Thus they all have to wear red coats and have, you know, green cuffs and blah, blah, blah. Each one could be individual and each one could, you know, this guy might be a British line infantryman. So he could be dressed, dressed exactly as, as the 95th was or whatever, but the well, 95th was rifles, but you know, the, some, some line unit. Um, but also he could be, he could have thrown away his Shaco and, got a floppy hat because you know he's kind of a specialist so <laughs> they only sort of follow the rules so i wanted to give people like the excuse to paint napoleonic miniatures but also the freedom to not worry at all about getting it right they can you know if you, if you get the fun out of that then absolutely go for it but if you don't then just take the miniature and kind of paint it any way you want and um and at the same time like i can't do anything apparently without sticking fantasy in there so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that this game is going to be really cool to see what people are doing with it because it's it's just it gives you so much opportunity. Um, whether that's existing historical stuff you've got, or maybe you know people like myself that have never really got into the historical, you can gives you an excuse to buy five or six or seven guys and, exactly. and paint them up. And, it's um, a really low buy-in, you know, kind of, and and really like I've realized that so much of my job is is to just give people an excuse to buy minis because you know that's again like that's what we really love are these little miniature figurines and, and our rules tend to be the excuse to acquire those um <laughs> so here's your excuse to get napoleonic ones plus some some gothic you know monsters to go along with them um so will you do a wee will you do a wee solo rule set for that as a precaution uh, it's it's already in the book so cool Oh, yeah, like, these are the times aren't they that, yeah. that'll probably be everyone will just do that now yeah well i realized like i think from working on other things it's like not only is this great in the sense that if something happens you can still play it it's great in the sense that it gives you an opportunity to play the game as soon as you buy it if you want to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it gives you a way to test out the rules before you have to play with somebody else and it gives you a way to play it if you don't have, you know, if you're between games with other people and, and just want more, um, mm-hmm. so, and, and Silver Bayonet for me was also just a real opportunity to make sure I could design another system because, <laughs> you know, what, with Stargrave and Frostgrave and even Rangers of Shadowdeep, they, they do use a lot of the same core mechanics and, um, and I didn't feel those core mechanics quite matched what I wanted for silver bayonet um you know as as has been much commented upon that the, the frostgrave system is quite wild uh swingy is the the popular term but because you're rolling that d20 and and that's how i want it to be i want those games to be wild and and you know for the the surprising to happen and um while i want that to some extent in the silver bayonet i didn't want it quite as much i wanted the game to be slightly more controlled and um so part of that is instead of rolling a d20 you are rolling 2d10 um you're using them in a different way than than you are in frostgrave 
and um, and also you've got ways to manipulate those roles that you don't have in frost graves you've got a kind of fate pool where you can bring in dice and re-roll them and, and stuff so there's there's a little more player control and because because you didn't have the spells that you have in Frostgrave giving you that big decision-making element every turn, this this fate pool and how you use it and how you modify your dice rolls becomes an interesting element of player decision, um, which I think is important in, in any game. So. Yeah, really looking forward to that. So that comes out in the, the winter. Is it November, I think, i seen? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> like, it's really hard as the as an author, I suppose, to kind of remember schedules because you uh, you've know, done I, your part now, haven't exactly. you? Exactly. I've actually got Silver <laughs> Bayonet sitting on my shelf and, um, yeah. you know, as the, the author advance and, and in some ways I haven't really thought about the game in its kind of basic mechanics for, for months now. And, and I'm, meanwhile, I'm, I'm deep into a Stargrave thing at the moment. So, but that won't be seen for a year and a half. <laughs> so, so it's yeah you're always kind of off what people are talking about so yeah working on the next thing yeah um joe it's been a, a brilliant chat we're approaching yeah. the end just now where mm-hmm. uh where might the listener uh be able to go and check out your stuff should they desire and, and why wouldn't they yeah well um if you if you want the one-stop shop for everything then i would say go to north star military figures at least in the uk because not only do they carry all of my games, but they've also got all of the figures, the official figures for them. If um, if you want to go official figures, um, obviously Osprey publishes most of my games, so you can you can go to the Osprey site and and see them all there. Um, I do do some self publishing on Drive Through RPG, so while well, you can get Rangers of Shadow Deep, the basic game from Modiphius, all the supplements for it. Are, are currently on drive through and you can get them as PDFs or, or you can get them print on demand. Um, and if you just kind of want to keep up with me, I've got a blog called the Renaissance troll, uh, at blogspot.com. I think that you know, Google the Renaissance troll and blog and it, it'll be the only I, thing. That I, comes can't, up. <laughs> I can't spell. You could pay me all the money on earth. I, I can't spell Renaissance. I know. It's, ta- it's taken me years of having a blog with that name <laughs> to be able to do it. But if you get close enough, Google's smart and it'll figure it out. So, yeah. But you can find find me there. And, and not only kind of is that going to have all the updates on my work, but it's also got my hobby because I like to put up the miniatures I'm painting or the games I'm playing or the, whatever I'm working on. Because, um, you know, this isn't just this isn't just my job. This is this is my fun, too. So <laughs> big thanks to Joe there. Lovely guy, as well as a great games writer. As always, links to the various things we've mentioned in the podcast you'll find in the show notes over at bedroombattlefields.com slash podcast. And while you're at it, we're always looking for new guests or co-hosts to come on future episodes and have a wee chat about anything hobby-related. You don't need to have created a game like Frostgrave to come on. You don't need to have created any games at all, to be quite honest with you. If you've got something you'd like to talk about on the show, then please get in touch. Again, that link, bedroombattlefields.com slash podcast is where you need to go. You'll find a form there, nice and easy to fill out, and we can take it from there. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you on the next one.